0: You know, I chose the theme for our study from 1 John on the three simple words, yes, I know, because as we saw here tonight, uh, we know there are just some things about the book of 1 John teaches us about knowing, about having that assurance, of having that complete and total confidence. And as we've studied through just a few a few verses in the last <coughs> few weeks here, we know that that there's some emphasis that John makes, and he, this emphasis he makes is, yes, I know that True joy is knowing Jesus Christ as my Savior and having fellowship with Him. And yes, I know that sin can hinder my fellowship with God, but we can have forgiveness of sins and cleansing from all of our sins through, by confession through, through God. And yes, I know that a walk with God demands that I love like him, that we must walk in love even as He's loved us. And we must walk in the light and we must walk circumspectly in the Lord. And yes, I know that I must love not the world. And as we saw last week, yes, I know that evil men and seducers will wax worse and worse. But yes, I know that Jesus Christ is coming again. He's coming soon. And tonight as we look at our passage of Scripture, we actually have to go back... In chapter 2, where we left off last week, at verse 28, because the passage, the, the, the passage of Scripture we're looking at tonight begins actually first John chapter 2, verse 28, and goes from chapter 3 all the way to verse 6 here. And the emphasis tonight is, yes, I know that I am a son of God. Now, notice, we think about being a son of God, we know that it emphasizes the relationship that every believer has in Jesus Christ the moment they put their faith and trust in Christ as Savior. And tonight we want to study what I would consider the positives, the proof, and the prospects of being a son of God. So if you've got your pen out, a piece of paper, I want to give you some thoughts tonight about being a son of God that I go from being very simple to just being very complex this evening. Number one, I want you to consider with me the means for becoming a son of God. The means for becoming a son of God. Go back to chapter 2, verse 29, and the actual thought about sonship is introduced in verse 29. In verse 29 it says, If you know that He is righteous... You know that everyone that doeth righteousness, notice this phrase, is born of him. John introduced the thought of sonship by the birth, the sect, the, the, if you would, spiritual birth we have in Jesus Christ. But he continues the thought as we go into chapter 3, verse 1, by saying, Behold, what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us that we should be called the sons of God. Now he's equating the love God has for us, the love that began when we understand John 3:16, the same love that he emphasizes in 1 John chapter 4 verse 10. And this love that continues even afterwards, which says, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. Now, it's great to tell somebody what it means to be saved. And it's great to tell somebody that we have forgiveness of sins. And it's great to tell someone that we've been cleansed of our sins and that we're saved and, and, uh, and that we have eternal life. But we don't stop there because we want to go on by emphasizing the love of God working in our lives that produces the fact that we are sons of God. And sonship, if you would, he says, what manner of love? He's saying there, basically, what expression of God's love and what exhibit of God's love and what incredibleness of God's love that we should be called the sons of God. I love that song we sang just a few minutes ago about the child of the king. The lyrics say this, once I was clothed in the rags of my sin, wretched and poor, lost and lonely within. But with wondrous compassion, the king of all kings in pity and love took me under his wings. The second, the, the second stanza says, Now I'm a child with a heavenly home. My Holy Father has made me his own. And I'm cleansed by his blood and I'm clothed in his love. And someday I'll sing with the angels above. And then we get to the chorus which says, Oh yes! Oh yes, I'm a child of the King. His royal blood now flows in my vein. Now, and he says here, and I, and I who was wretched and poor now can sing. Praise God, praise God, I'm a child of the King. Now if you're thankful you're a child of the King tonight, you ought to give glory to God. If there's nothing else you praise God for, you ought to praise Him tonight that you're a child of the King. Now what do we mean by the means? How does a person become a son of God? Maybe you're watching tonight you're not really sure you're saved. You don't even know the concept, born again, or regeneration, or son of God, what that means. What do we mean by that? Well, notice, first of all, there's the acceptance of being a son of God. There's the acceptance. For John 1.12 tells us how the means of acceptance. It says, but as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Now, you may not have time to turn to John 1.12, but make a notation. There's two words in John 1.12 I want you to, to circle. The word receive and the word believe. The word receive and the word believe. That's referring to acceptance. Look at 1 John 5.1. 1 1 John 5.1 gives us emphasis about that. 1 John 5.1 says, Whosoever believeth that Jesus is the Christ is born of God. Now, there's a couple of things I want to tell you about that. Number one, anybody can get saved. Anybody can get saved, not just a few people. There's no such thing as just a, a restricted few or an unconditional election or a limited atonement, and there's no such thing as a as a as a as a limited grace where only a few can get saved. The Bible says, Whosoever believeth is born of him. Anyone who accepts Jesus Christ as Savior, who believes and receives, they are accepted and become sons of God. There's the acceptance. The Bible tells us in Acts chapter four, verse twelve. Neither is there salvation any other, for there is none other name given among men under heaven, whereby we must be saved. So we know that this means there is an acceptance. But secondly, there is an action. Would you go to John chapter 3 in your Bible, please? There is an action that is involved. Now, how does this produce itself in the life of an individual? I want to give you a thought here tonight. Sonship is the result of the work of regeneration. That is the action. Now, the word regeneration is the same word that we get the words born again from. It's the same word, born again, regenerated. And John 3, 3, our Lord Jesus Christ introduced that to us. We call that the new birth. In John 3, 3, Jesus said, he, Jesus answered, said unto him, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, except a man be born again... He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now he goes down below that, beneath that, and because Nicodemus asked the question, well, how can be a man be born if he was already born once? How can he be born twice? And Jesus answered it by saying, I'm not talking about a physical birth, I'm talking about spiritual birth. And in John 3, 5, he answered it by giving him the action that's involved in the matter of spiritual birth, rebirth. Jesus answered and said, Verily, verily, I say unto thee, Except a man be born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now that's important because as we consider the means and this action, what does it mean to be born of the water and of the Spirit? Is he saying that taking a bath or taking a shower makes me a child of God? Is he talking about the baptism makes me a child of God? No, he's not talking about any of those. Sometimes people read that and they get confused or they get worried. Maybe the Bible saying, baptism saves me. Baptism does not save you. Baptism is a work. What he is saying here, that the water is a symbol for God's word. How do we know that? Well, if you go look up later in your Bible... First 1 Peter 1.23 tells us that, that it says that being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. In First John one twenty, First uh, 1 Peter 1.23, it emphasizes it's the word of God that does the washing, it's the word of God that does the transformation. If a man be born of water, of the word of God, and then the Spirit, of course, is talking about the work of the Holy Spirit. And we find that in Titus three five. In Titus three five, it tells us that we are that the the, mat, the matter of the new birth process is of the Holy Spirit of God by the washing of regeneration, by the, by the working of the Holy Spirit of God. So we know the two, two actions are involved. The Word of God working the heart of the individual, and if you would, the, the working of the Holy Spirit. This afternoon as I was driving home, I, a message pulled up on my phone, and uh, I got a message from someone who w- was watching the service this, this, uh, this morning, and this is what they said. They said uh, this to me. They said, uh, Pastor, uh, I was in tears today at church he said, the preaching was very heavy on me. It felt like I was getting crushed at one point, And I wanted to walk out, but I didn't. He said, as I got into the car, I was still in tears, not understanding what just had happened. And I just started talking to my wife, and she said, it's okay. It's God's word reaching in me and telling me I'm his son. He said, I just want to say thank you that I've never experienced anything like that. Now, what do we call that? That's the conviction of the Holy Spirit. That's the working of God's Word in the heart of an individual. When God's work, when we are so teachable and pliable that the Holy Spirit of God can take the Word of God and embed it in our heart and work in us and produces an effect in our life where we sense this convicting power. We, we sense this working. But we also sense the washing of the Word of God. He takes His Word, He convicts us through His Word, and He changes and transforms us through the Word of God. So we see the acceptance, we see the action, but then there's the adoption, Now the means of becoming a son of God, there is the spiritual adoption that is involved with this. And if you go to Galatians chapter 4, notice in Galatians 4 verses 4 to 6, we see adoption is God bringing us into his family. The Bible says here, but when the fullness of time was come, God sent forth his son made of a woman. Made under the law. Now he's talking about the incarnation of Christ. He's talking about Jesus fulfilling prophecy, fulfilling Isaiah seven fourteen, Isaiah 9 6. He said, God sent forth his son, made of a woman, made under the law, to redeem them that were under the law, that we might receive the adoption of sons. Now there's that phrase adoption of sons. Adoption of sons is referring to the matter of sonship there. And he says, And because you're sons, God has sent forth the spirit of his son into your hearts, crying, Abba Father. A man and his wife had tried to have children naturally for 15 years. Both of them came to the conclusion that they were physically unable to have children. They were very saddened by that. And so they made application uh, for an adoption process. They really wanted to have children, so they made application. And after a very, very long wait, a very long duration of time, the adoption agency contacted them and said, there was a child that was born. And they were being considered, they were the top of the list as candidates being considered for the adoption of this child. And so the process worked itself and they were told that they were, uh, that they had, uh, they were the, the finalists. And they were given a date they were to appear in court to get finalized or confirmation that, and the, the, of the whole process, the adoption process, so that this son could be their son. They got all dressed up, they arrived that day and appeared before the judge. The judge had spent some time reviewing the file. It was a family court situation, and he had reviewed the file and looked at everything concerning that and felt like they had been vetted out very properly by the, by the welfare department, the adoption agency, and everybody there. And the judge, with a very stern look in his face, he pointed his bony finger at their face, and he, he said to the man, Now, sir, I need to ask you a question. He said, Is there anyone coercing you to adopt this little boy? Is there anyone coercing you to adopt this little boy? To which the man unflinchingly said, No, sir, no one's coercing us. Out of our love, our concern, we want to adopt a child. We've been waiting very patiently, and and so we understand we're the finalists for the adoption of this little boy. We've seen his picture and all that, and we're very excited about this. But we want you to know, no one's coercing us. We want to adopt him out of the freeness of our heart. We want to bring him into our home. We want him to take on my name. We want him just to grow up in our home as if he was born into our family. And the judge said, said this to the man. From today on, he is your son. He may disappoint you, even grieve you, but he is your son. Everything you own one day will be his, and he will bear your name. And then he looked to the clerk and gave this command. Order a change in this child's birth certificate that it may reflect that these two people, this husband and wife, are the parents of that child. And you know, in someone, in a way, using this as as a story, that's what God does for us. He looks at us, we get saved, and we're brought into the family of God. We become heirs of God and join heirs with Jesus Christ. Spiritual adoption, may I say this tonight, is love without coercion. God did not coerce, did not coerce to do it. God brings us to his family because God loves us. It's love without coercion. I think about the book of Philemon and what a wonderful story there about a, about a slave by the name of Onesimus. Onesimus went from being a slave to becoming a son of God. And here's what, here's what the Apostle Paul had to say about it. Paul was working, if you would, as a kind of the relationship broker to get Onesimus restored to Philemon. And that's a whole different sermon there to itself. But on Philemon one eleven, it says this. Paul said this to Philemon on behalf of Onesimus. I beseech thee for my son, Onesimus, whom I have begotten in my bonds. In other words, Onesimus, who was one time the slave of Philemon, he ran away. Now, a slave, if you would, a bond slave, had no rights. And a bond slave basically did whatever the master told him he had to do. He had to work 24-7. There were no labor laws. He basically did whatever he was told to do. He had no rights unless the master let him go free. And for whatever reason, Onesimus got tired of being a bond slave, and so he ran away. Well, that was a problem for him because by running away, he came under the capital punishment laws of Rome. Any runaway slave, the master had the right to put that slave to death. Now, Philemon, if you read the book of Philemon, was a great great Christian. I mean, Paul takes about 10 verses commending Philemon for being a great Christian. He was a loving Christian. He was a great soul winner. He had a great testimony and he was such a loving man. In fact, I believe perhaps he may have even been a, a leading deacon inside that church. And uh, he'd opened his home up so the church of Colossae, committed his home. And uh, when uh, Epaphras went to Rome uh, to be with Paul and to minister to Paul in his bonds. Uh, they took his, they took the son of Philemon and Apia, his wife, their son Archippus, and Archippus, I believe, became the pastor of the church for that period of time while while uh, while Philemon while while, uh, while Epaphras was with Paul. And so there was a just he had a great testimony. Everything you read in the first ten verses spe- uh, speaks about the testimony of this man Philemon, but. Philemon as a master, I imagine humanly, was not very happy that his slave had run away because that slave cost him a minimum 30 pieces of silver. And so he may have not been very happy. And maybe he contemplated in his mind the Roman capital punishment laws against the slave. And uh, while Paul was there at Rome, of all things, Onesimus ran away to Rome. And he ran away to Rome thinking he could escape uh, Philemon, escape the law and everything. And somehow along the way, Philemon made, his, made contact with the apostle Paul And through Paul's uh, influence there, Paul leads Onesimus to Christ. Now, Paul had not put two and two together. Philemon was his friend. He knew Philemon very well, but he didn't really know Onesimus at that time. And Onesimus, uh, as he came under under Paul's influence, Onesimus got slaved. And over a period of time, Onesimus told Philemon, Hey, you know, i got to tell you something that's been heavy on my conscience. i got to tell you, I worked for this man by the name of Philemon. And Paul would stop and say, What do you mean you work for a man by the name of Philemon? He says, Are you talking about Philemon from the city of Colossae? Yes, Philemon from the city of Colossae. Are you talking about a Philemon who had a wife who was married to Aphia? Yes, uh, Philemon married to Aphia. Are you talking about a Philemon who had a son by the name of Archibus? Yes, I, I'm talking about a man who had a son by the name of Archibus. And Onesimus would stop right there and he said, Wait a minute, wait a minute. How do you know this man? How do you know him? And Paul said, Well, he's my good friend. He's a Christian. He's born again. He's saved. He's got Jesus in your life just like you got, you got Jesus in your life. And Onesimus would drop his head and say, Sir, I knew he was a Christian. I knew that he loved God. But I ran away from him because I was a slave. I didn't like the life of being a slave and I ran away. And he says, Now God brought me to your and to your influence. I mean, thousands of miles away I've made my way over here and I came to know Jesus Christ as my Savior. And if you read Lemon. And that's felt like his great ministry would be just to stay there and to serve the apostle Paul uh, while he was there. But Paul said, no, he says, you did wrong. You broke the law by running away from your master and you need to go back to Philemon. Number one, you need to go back to Philemon because you you still belong to him. Second, you need to go back to Philemon because he's a brother in Christ. He says, I'm going to write a letter and I'm going to get the two of you reconciled. It's a beautiful story of of, of just spiritual reconciliation there. And so Paul does that. And as Paul's writing this letter, look at Philemon 1.16, This great statement about Onesimus. He says, Not now as a servant, listen to this, but above a servant. And the word for servant is the word doulos, which means a bondslave. Not now as a servant, but above a servant, a brother beloved, specially to me, but how much more to thee, both in the flesh and in the Lord. You see, when we got saved, our sins were forgiven. And not only were our sins forgiven, but God gave us the gift of eternal life. And not only that, but God brought us into His family through the matter of sonship. And God looked at you and I. Instead of being slaves to sin, He says, "Not He says not now as a servant, but much more, but above a servant, a brother beloved." And so we look at this and we thank God. We go from being a slave becoming a son. I'm just saying this more, this evening, as we consider 1 John chapter 3, verse 1, we see first of all the means for sonship. There's a second thing, which you notice this, number two, which considers me the marks of sonship. Let me make a statement to you tonight that's very important. Number one, sonship is past. Sonship is past. What I mean by that is God saving us. Brought us into his family. That's sonship past. But there's sonship present. And sonship present is where we see the marks of sonship. Now, if you're saved, people need to know you're saved. Amen? They need to know you're saved. You need to give a testimony of the fact that you're saved. And so we see some things about this, that the marks of sonship. Go with me to Romans chapter 8, and you'll notice, first of all, the paternity in sonship. Now, this is important. Because that's what First John 3, 1 says. Behold what manner of love the Father, the Father has bestowed upon us. The paternity of sonship. In Romans chapter 8, verses 14 to 17, Paul does a masterful job explaining the paternal relationship every believer has with God the Father. And making us a son of God. And he said this in verse 14. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. For you have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear. That's what we were under before. But we're no longer under the spirit of bondage. But you've received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba Father. The Spirit also itself, uh, the Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, join heirs with Christ, if so be that we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. Now we see sonship present, that God brings us into his family. God is our heavenly Father. Now, some people will say mistakenly that God is the Father of all the world. God is not the Father of all the world. God is the. You read uh, Ephesians chapter three. God is the Father of those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ as Savior. We're thankful tonight that He is our heavenly Father. And as Jesus was giving the Sermon on the Mount in John chapter, in, in, excuse me, in Matthew chapter six, He was telling them, "When you pray, pray, pray this: Our Father, which is in heaven." God is our Father. We can cry out as He said in verse fifteen here. Abba, Father. Now, Abba is a very a very, uh, a very, very, tender term, a very affectionate term of affection. And it basically is like saying, Daddy, Daddy. Say we can call God our Father very intimately. It's not a, a very distant saying. It's God is our Heavenly Father. We are heirs of God. There's a paternity in this. But notice the privilege in this. He says we can cry out, Abba, Father. Now, I love this. That 24-7, seven days a week, we can approach God at any time. And sometimes we take that for granted. But 24-7, seven days a week, we can come to God at any time as our Heavenly Father. He's always accessible. He's always available. Matthew seven eleven, he said this, if ye then being evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more shall your heavenly Father give the which is, your Father which is in heaven give good things to them that ask him. Now I love how Jesus wove all that together in explaining the matter of prayer, because he began by saying, "Asking you shall receive, and seeking you shall find." And then he concludes that section by saying, "If ye then being evil, if you are a sinner, you know how to give good gifts to your children. How much more shall Heavenly Father give good things to them that ask of him?" 1 Peter 1.17 says, And if you call on the Father, who without respect of persons, judges according to every man's work, pass the time of your sojourning here in fear. Now one of the great privileges of the Christian life, if you're not doing it, you need to exercise this, is coming to God as your Father and spending detailed time in Him in prayer. As we come to God as our Father, we come to Him through the blessed and holy name of our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now the Apostle, uh, excuse me, Abraham Lincoln had a son by the name of Tad. During the Civil War, a soldier who was on the front lines got a message, he got a letter telling him that his mother, who had been very sick and he had not seen since he had been in, inducted into war, had taken a turn for the worse. And the family said, you better come home to see your mom as soon as you can, she may not make it. See if you can get a leave of absence from, from fighting on the battlefield. And at that time, everything, the conflict between the north and south was very intense. The soldier wrote a letter once. They said, no, we can't let you have this furlough. He wrote a second letter. They said, no, we can't let you have this furlough. And so the soldier was very discouraged, very downcast, because he knew that his the possibility was that his mother could pass away at any time, and he wanted to be there so badly to tell her he loved her and to comfort her during her, her time of just uh, health decline. He had his way, his unit made their way to Washington, D.C. While they were there, they had a few hours off, and the soldier just kind of asked permission to be by himself, and the officer in command, his commanding officer, knowing that he was grieving and very burdened his heart, and knowing that... That he had not gotten permission to go home, so he allowed him to, a couple hours to get away. He said, "But don't go very far away." And this officer, this, this soldier, excuse me, he made his way very close to the White House. He found a park bench and just sat there. And as he sat there, he just kind of bent over and put his his face in his hands. He was sobbing and crying and just didn't know what to do. Abraham Lincoln's son Tad was a little boy at that time, and Tad was just at that time, of course, they didn't they were not as much concerned about security as they are today, and and so the, they didn't have all the protective gates and things like that around the White House. And the White House was not like it is today, but, but Tad made his way outside the, the beautiful garden outside. He would play outside there, and he was outside there, and he saw this soldier there with, with, who was bent over with his face in his hands. And Tad made his way up to the soldier because he thought that was kind of a weird sight. He said, normally you see a soldier standing erect and standing attention and guarding, but this soldier was bent over. and He knew something wasn't right, and as he got closer to the soldier, he realized he, the soldier was sobbing and crying. And he went up to him and he said, hey, soldier, what's wrong? The soldier looked at up, and he didn't realize that was Tad Lincoln, the son of Abraham Lincoln. He said, he, he looked at him, he kind of ignored him at first. He said, hey, soldier, what's wrong? Why are you crying? Aren't you supposed to be with the rest of your regiment?" The soldier said, no, son. He said, uh, I'm crying and brokenhearted because my mother's not doing very well health-wise, and I've written to the government twice about letting me go home to see her, but because of the conflict we're in, it's just very difficult, and I'm not able to get away, and... And so I, I'm fearful that while I'm here serving our country that there's a possibility my, 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 my mother might pass away and I may not be there when she passes away. Tad looked at him and he said, come here, you could, would you stand up please? And the soldier didn't know, really get the experience. What is this little boy doing tell me to stand up? And he stood up and he took the soldier by the hand. He says, my name is Tad. I'm the president's son. He says, let me, let me take you up. I'll, I'll bring you to my dad right now. And he's just kind of like, he's trying to process all this. In one moment, he's grieving. Next minute, here's this, the son of the president, Tad Lincoln, with him, a little 10- or 12-year-old boy, and he's taking him by the hand. And before the soldier could say anything, Tad, who was very persuasive, just took him by the hand and started making their way up the stairs into the, into the, to the White House to head to the Oval Office. Well, they get to the doors, and they, he gets to the front door. Now they come to the doors where President Lincoln was at. He was behind closed doors with his uh, with his counselors and his counselor and, and, and his cabinet there, and they were just discussing about the strategies and things like that, and and there were several guards there, and they saw Tad there, and they knew that it was Tad. But they saw the soldier with him, they immediately they just blocked the door because they didn't know what was going on. And they said, "What are you doing?" And Tad said, "Well, this soldier needs to see my father. I need to take him in to see my dad." And They said, "You can't go in. You know that's the president, and it doesn't matter if you're his son or whatever. You've got to let him come in." And Tad, Tad said, "No, wait a minute. I'm the son. I can go in to see my dad any time. You've let me go in before. Let me go in to see my father." And they said, "No, we can't do it." And there's all this commotion outside, and the president recognized it was Tad's voice that he heard. He said, "Well, I wonder if my son got in trouble or something there." And the president just stopped everything inside of his chambers, and he told all of his, 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 uh, his cabinet members, please stop for just a minute, and he got up from his desk, went around his desk, and he abruptly opened the doors, and he said abruptly opened the doors, they, the soldiers were kind of taken by surprise, and Tad was there, and the president, of course, was very tall, and President Lincoln looking down, he said, Tad, what's going on, and he said, so, "He said, Dad, he said, Father, he says, this soldier needs to see you, and I brought him to you, please let us in, and so without making ado, do. The president said, please let them come in. You can let them come in. That's my son. I trust my son. He knows what he's doing. He, they brought him in. The doors were kept wide open. The president sat behind his desk. He has his cabinet members move aside. The soldier came, behind, came to the front of the desk, and Tad stood with him right to his side. He said, soldier, what is it that you need? And the soldier explained to him that, he was, uh, that his um, mother was dying, and he'd written to his superior officers about letting him go back to see his mother, and he felt like his mother was going to make And He says, uh, the only the only recourse I have is to ask you, Mr. President, If there's any way you can let me go see my my, my mother, would you let me go? And Tad stood right next to him. Tad said, "Stad, he needs to see his mother. I'm here with him to let you know that you can trust this soldier. I believe he's telling the truth. Would you let this soldier go see his mother? And upon that, President Lincoln sat down at his desk. He took a piece of paper out took a feather pen, and with that feather pen he wrote out to give this soldier a furlough and allowing the soldier to go back. He rolled that letter back up after the ink had dried, gave it to the, the soldier. said, Sir, you take this to a officer, and you tell him, signed by Abraham Lincoln, the president, that you have my permission, that you can go back and see your mother. Hey, that's exactly what Jesus Christ does for you and me. He stands with us. He stands alongside of us. He brings us into the presence of our Father. As we have that great, wonderful privilege, Jesus Christ, as we pray in His name, we have access into the Father through our Lord Jesus Christ. And we can say, Abba, Father, because of Jesus Christ there. Now, we see the paternity in the marks. We see the privileges in the marks. But you notice there are certain practices that mark us as sons of God. There are practices that mark us as the sons of God. Let me give you a couple of them here. Go to 1 John 4, 7. And in 1 John 4, 7, it says, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God. And everyone that loveth is born of God and knoweth God. Now, the first practice I'm going to give you that we just read here is the love of God working us towards others is a mark of of sonship. Now, if you're truly saved, you're truly saved, there should be a love in your heart for other people. You ought to say amen if you're watching my live stream tonight. There ought to be a love in your heart Brother, well, you don't understand, Pastor. I've been burned. I understand that. You don't understand, Pastor. I've been disappointed. I understand that. You don't understand, Pastor. I've been disillusioned. I understand that. You don't understand, Pastor. I've been gossiped against. I understand that. You don't understand, Pastor. I've been maligned. It doesn't matter. The Bible says this in 1 Peter 1 22, seeing that you have purified yourselves, it tells us that we are to love the brethren with a fervent love. Now, that means this there needs to be a working of God in our heart, as 1 John 4 7 says. He says, Let us love one another. Love is of God, and everyone that loveth is born of God. It's an evidence of the Lord Jesus Christ working in our heart. The love we have for others. Now listen, when when COVID is kind of settled down and we get out of this purple tier, red tier, orange tier, yellow tier, we just get back to normality, whatever that may be later on, and we can come back. There ought to be such a love that God's people have for one another. There ought to be a love of seeing one another, of being in church, having our buildings filled again, having classrooms operational, and things of that nature, and just loving one another, and not going back in the previous mode that there's a mode of maybe suspicion or concern because all of us are sinners and all of us have our mistakes and all of us have our issues, but realizing we can look beyond everyone's faults just as God looks beyond our faults and loving one another because that testifies to the fact that we are sons of God when we have that kind of love. But there's a second practice. 1 John chapter 3, verse 6. Would you notice this? 1 John 3, 6 says, Whosoever abideth in him sinneth not. Whosoever sinneth hath not seen him neither known him. Now, I'm going to talk about that in a minute. Go to 1 John 5, 18. And I love how John writes this in the closing of the the book. We know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. Now, at least three times, maybe four times, John makes emphasis that you sin not or not sin. Now, he's not not saying we're going to be sinless. We're not sinless. He's not saying that we will not sin again. But he's saying that our character, our heart, is that we don't want to sin. We don't want to displease God. We don't want to, we don't want to mar our testimony. We don't want to be a blotch in the na- to the name of Jesus Christ here. So he says here, what he's teaching us here in verse five, chapter 5, verse 18, we know that whosoever is born of God sinneth not. And he said this, but he that is begotten of God keepeth himself... And that wicked one touching them not. I, I love when I get to that verse to explain it. But here's what he's saying. Living in the power of Christ, we should be living under the power of Christ and not under the power of sin. So two marks this evening that we see in First John. Mark number one, there's an exuberance of love. There's this there's this just expression of love that the Lord works in our heart. We love the brethren. We love our church. We love being around God's people. We love fellowshipping. We love praying for one another. We love serving one another. We love being around God's people. We love thinking about how we can help God's people. There ought to be this love we have in our heart. And there just ought to be something that when we get to a church like ours, that there's a special love. I know in my heart that when, when, whenever I'm out of town... And I'm and I either preaching or visit another church of like precious faith, an Independent Baptist Church. There's just something about you when you walk, when you drive up to the parking lot, and you see a parking lot usher, and you can say, "Hey, brother, how you doing?" And they greet you back, and that you shake hands. And then you make your way to the church, and people greet you. They know you're a visitor, and they greet you, and, and, they, and they extend their hand of fellowship to you. And you sense that even before you get to the auditorium to take your seat, you sense there's a love of God there. And then the pastor sees you, and he acknowledges you, and he comes up to you and says hello to you. And uh, you just feel like at that moment in time that the church is just really engaged with visitors and people that come. And it ought to be that as a church that we have that kind of love for one another. And I'm just saying tonight that even though we are somewhat inhibited because of COVID 19, let us be a people in a church that when Church does fully reassemble, and we don't have all these restrictions and things like that, that we have this great love we have for the church. And then he says that we ought to, one of our, the second mark is that we live our life separated so that we're not under the influence of sin, that the Bible says that we keep ourselves so that the wicked one touches us not, and we keep ourselves so that we're not put ourselves in exposure to sin. Listen to Philippians 2.15 says about that. It says that you may be blameless and harmless. Listen to this. The sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation among whom you shine as lights in the world. Now that verse right there is convicting to everyone who is a born again child of God. We ought to be blameless and harmless. The sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. Now some people get saved. And somehow they can't detach themselves from their old nature. Just that old nature keeps coming back up. They keep cracking wrong jokes, off color jokes, they keep talking about things that are really uh, that are just out of bounds as far as a Christian concerned, or going to places and doing things and even though they know what the Bible says and they've grown up in a church like here this Baptist Church, where the preaching of God's word of God's word tells us that we ought to live holy lives, but yet there's always seem to be on the on the boundary line there. May I say to you tonight that the Bible instructs us? That is, as believers, that we must be conscientious that we're to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a quick and perverse nation. And we ought to remind ourselves the importance of having a godly testimony. Listen, we live in a very hostile world. We live in a world that's hostile to God. We live in a world that's hostile, hostile to believers. We're, we live in a world that's hostile to uh, conservative beliefs and, and things of like that nature. And, 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 and vile things will be said about you and towards you. And uh, even to the point where, you know, you're just going to be reactionary instead of being responsive. And when you're reactionary, you become defensive. And when you're defensive, you can can just say things you should not say or or maybe cross a boundary line you should not. And then later on, after you've done that, you think, oh man, I really blew it. I hurt my testimony. And what God is telling us, take the high road, Make it your emphasis to be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a quick and perverse nation. And so I'm saying tonight, there is the means of sonship, but there are the marks of sonship. God doesn't want us to be silently in a corner somewhere where nobody knows we're children of God. God wants us to demonstrate through our prayer life, by calling on our Father in heaven, and through our Christian testimony, that people have an evidence that we're living for Christ and that Jesus Christ is real in our hearts here. So we see the marks of sonship. But notice the third thing. Go back to 1 John 3. We see the metamorphosis in sonship. And I'm not going to spell it for you, so hopefully spelled right on the screen there. Amen? Now, I said this. Sonship is past. When you get saved, you immediately become a son of God. Sonship is present. We show the marks of sonship. Through the paternity. Through the privileges. Through the practices. But sonship has a prospect. And here's the thing we have to focus on. Sonship reaches its perfection, as we find here in 1 John 3.2. 1 John 3.1 is trying to excite us and enthuse us with God's love, the essence of His love in making us, calling us sons of God. And so John says in verse 2, Beloved, now... Are we the sons of God? And it doth not yet appear what we shall be. Now that's a great thought there. Because the thought we were asking, okay, now if I'm a son of God, and this is good as it is, what happens in the future? What happens in the future? I mean you need to think about that, okay? You I mean what's going to happen in the future? It doth not yet appear what we shall be, because we know we're going to heaven. But what happens when we go to heaven? And he explains that here. He talks about this metamorphosis because he says, and it doth not yet appear what we shall be. But, Paul, but John said this because he had taught them this. But we know, we know that when he shall appear, and that correlates to 1 John two twenty-eight. He's still on the theme of the second coming of Christ or the rapture of Jesus Christ. He says, but we know that when he shall appear, we shall be like him for we shall see him as he is. Now the great thought there that we have in verse 2 is we shall be like him. Okay? Now we are what we are right now. And what we are right now, we sons of God, but we have still, we still we live in this old flesh. And we're not to put confidence in this flesh. And in this flesh there dwelleth no good thing. We know our flesh will fail us. But he says we know that when we shall see him, when he appears, we shall be just like him. And the prospect of this is that you and I will be transformed. You and I, the greatness of sonship is in the future when we shall be like Jesus Christ. Now, the greatest, the greatest thought we can have when we leave tonight, when we finish this sermon this evening, is that we shall be Just like Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the greatest thought. We're not going to continue in this old flesh. We're not going to continue to be the personality that we are, the joker that we are, or the person that we are. The the Bible says here that the greatest of the thought is we shall be like Him. And the greatest aspiration is knowing is that we shall be like Him. That's why I love what it says in in Colossians chapter 3. It says, if ye then be risen with Christ, seek those things which are above. Where Christ sitteth on the right hand of God. He says, set your affection on things above, not things of the earth. For you're dead and your life is hid with Christ in God. For when he shall appear, we shall see him as he is. The Bible says, we shall be just like him. Now as we look at this, we're looking at a metamorphosis. And we have to understand this this evening in verse 2, what is that metamorphosis? Well, number one, would you notice there's a trigger to this metamorphosis. And the trigger is when He shall appear, when Jesus shall come. Now, thank God Jesus is going to take us out of this sin-sick world. Amen. Thank God that Jesus is going to rapture us out. I believe the pressure... The persecution, the troubles, the difficulties we're going to face before the rapture comes. It's going to be, the word for rapture just has the same idea of snatching a brand out of the burning. That's what Jude tells us. The word harpazo, means to snatch out. And it means to snatch us out. I believe that the intensity, the heat, the trials, the affliction that God's people are going to go through are going to be very intense. And it's a wonderful thing to know that the Lord will take us out. But that's good, but it's even better. It's the fact that we're going to be snatched out of this world we'll be have we we'll have a reunion with those who the res, the resurrected those who are resurrected in Christ but then the greatest thing is that we're going to be changed and this, this trigger if you would is the is the appearance of our Lord Jesus Christ John believed very strongly in the imminent return of our Lord. And he said in 1 John 2.28, And now little children abide in Him that when He shall appear. And in 1 John 3.2, he says, But we know that when He shall appear, He lived knowing that Jesus Christ could come at any moment. The imminent return of our Lord. The rapture will trigger resurrection. The rapture will trigger removal. The rapture will trigger a remake of every believer. The The rapture will trigger the wrath of God upon planet earth. We see the being the rapture. But we see not only the trigger, notice in verse 2 we see the transfiguration. No, it says we shall be like him. It has the same idea what we read in Matthew 17 of when the Lord was transfigured before them. The metamorphosis. The idea like a caterpillar that's in a cocoon, but when it comes out of the cocoon, it is no longer a caterpillar, it's a beautiful butterfly. Here in 1 John 3, 2, we see the glorification of every believer. We put off this earthly tabernacle, and we put on a tabernacle that's eternal, not made with hands, that's in the heavens. Philippians 3.21 says, who shall change our vile body as Jesus Christ, that it may be fashioned like unto His glorious body, according to the working, whereby He is able even to subdue all things unto Himself. We shall see Him as He is. The word see literally means this, that when when Jesus comes, and only those of us believers can see Him. The dead in Christ will hear him, but we will see him. The Bible says in a moment, the twinkling of an eye. You know, the twinkling of an eye is at the speed of light. Can you imagine? The Bible says, we shall see him as he is. The word see literally means this. There we're gazing upon him with amazement and wonder. You know, there's going to be something when the Lord appears and we look up in that single moment. And we're going to see the Lord in his glory. We're going to see him so beautiful. We're going to see him so holy. We're going to see him as he is. And as we see him as he is, the Bible says in, in Philippians 3, He shall change our vile body, be changed just like unto Him. We're going to see Him. We're going to have such a, Our eyes will be fully open in amazement at who we see and in what we see in the Lord, that we'll be transfigured in that moment just like our Lord Jesus Christ. The question is asked, what kind of body will we have in eternity, just like the resurrected body of our Lord Jesus Christ? Listen, we don't have to worry about blood function. We don't have to worry about our human emotion, human needs. We are perfected at that moment. This mortal puts on immortal. This corruptible puts on incorruptible. We shall be changed. Death is swallowed up in victory. And we can say like the apostle Paul said in 1 Corinthians fifteen fifty seven. but thanks be unto God, which gives us the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. We'll see him. We'll gaze upon him. We'll behold him with open eyes and we'll see him as we see him. We're going to take all that in and it's going to transform and change us permanently forever and forever there. We see a transfiguration, but notice we see a triumph. Death is swallowed up in victory. There's a the death of death. We shall be like him. We shall see him as he is. Can you imagine when the rapture comes? Those of us who are raptured, if that happens in our generation, we will not know death. That's pretty awesome, amen? We will not know death. I was counting up this year, this March, I think I've participated In six funerals, I've done five of them. got one more. Actually, it will be six. I have one more coming up. They're hard. Every service I do just seems to be a little bit more difficult. The thought process going into it, thinking about that loved one. I'm thankful for every one I did. They were people that were saved. People that were led to Christ. People that are in heaven that we'll have reunion with. And somehow as I get older, it seems like it's more difficult to comfort families during these times. The pain of separation, that loss. You know, Jonathan said about David, he said, Thy seat will be empty, thou shalt be missed. When a loved one departs, they're not going to sit in that chair anymore. They'll be missed. They're gone. We might remember their voice, but they're gone. They're not in this life. The pain of separation is somewhat unbearable at times. But we have the hope and assurance the Bible gives us of the death of death. And the reminder that we shall see Him as He is and the triumph over death there. And I'm just saying there's a metamorphosis, and that's the emphasis here, that we shall be like Him. Listen, the greatest goal of the Christian life is to be just like Jesus. We sing, oh, to be like Him. Listen, we are to apply our lives as we're growing in Christ, as we're reading our Bibles, as we spend time in prayer, as we serve the Lord, as we come to church. Lord, make me more like Yourself. Lord, help me when I look at Your Word, that I see Your Word as a mirror, and in that mirror I see myself. And the question I need to ask is, am I becoming more like the Lord Jesus Christ? Am I having more of His Spirit? Do I have more of His patience? Do I have more of His long-suffering? Do I have more of His peace? Do I have more of His love? Do I have more of His, 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 his gentleness in my life? Do I have more of Jesus Christ working in me? Do I, have a detest, do I detest sin more than I did before? I mean, our greatest goal should be the fact we're going to be like Him, and we shall see Him as He is, and when we see Him, He shall transform us. And listen, we that is a metamorphosis. That's the prospect of sonship. Thank God we get saved. We're sons of God. And thank God that, that when we that being saved, that we are to bear the marks of sonship. But the prospect of sonship is knowing that we shall be just like our Savior, Jesus Christ. Well, there's the means of sonship, there's the marks of sonship, there's the metamorphosis in sonship, but what you notice the motivation in sonship. Now, that's a great doctrinal truth in verse 2 about the glorification of the believer. When we get saved, we have justification. We're free from the penalty of sin. And now, as we live the Christian life, we live out sanctification. And sanctification is we are free from the power of sin. But beloved, glorification. We are free from the presence of sin. Praise God. No longer to the presence of sin. That's glorification. There. But we still have to live this life. And the Bible goes on later on in verses four to six and talking about sin and Sinning not and all of that. And so we have to ask ourselves this question Well, how do I get victory over this sin? How do I get victory over my flesh? And how do I get victory over the world? Because he talked about love not the world and he's talking about the flesh here. Well we got the motivation here. Look at verse three. He says, Every man that has this hope in him purify himself even as he is pure. Now God John wanted to give us a motivation to help us. Don't think about just the fact that you're gonna be like him as a theory. And it's a future expectation, realize that when we the fact that we're going to be like him gives us a motivation, how to live for him right now, because he says, every man that has this hope in him purifies himself, even as he's pure. So the Bible's saying there is a responsibility we have in getting prepared for the rapture. And getting prepared, what he says in first John two twenty eight, that we're not ashamed that is coming. So how do we do that? Well, notice a few things here. Number one, he talks about the hope in him. Every man that has this hope in him. What is that hope I have inside me? What is that hope you have inside of you? What is that hope? I'll tell you that hope is is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Amen? Is Jesus Christ inside you? Christ in you, the hope of glory. Second Thessalonians 2.16 says, Christ is that good hope through grace. Um, 1 Peter 1.3, Jesus Christ is that lively hope. Uh, 1 Peter 3.15, Christ is the hope that is within us. Listen, He's the God of hope. That hope within us is Jesus Christ. Every man that has this hope in Him. If you're saved, Christ is in you. If you're saved, He's the hope of glory inside your life tonight. So we have this hope in us. But listen, then He talks about purifying themselves. The word purify is a kind of interesting word. It requires a good word study. Purify means both be ceremonially and morally pure. Ceremonially, it has the idea for the Jews that before they came to give their sacrifices, they had to be ceremonially pure. I mean, every eye, every, every, every eye had to be dotted, every T had to be crossed. And God is telling you and I the importance of a holy life before God. Holy life doesn't happen. Holy life has to be worked at. A holy life comes from time in the Word, the presence of God, walking with God, praying to the Lord, spending time in His presence, guarding our speech, confessing our sins, taking days for prayer and fasting. I was sharing on Wednesday night about our missionary there uh, to Fiji, Brother Kumar, and some of you might remember his daughter Regina for about two years now has had a number of health problems. They finally after a long period of time, again, the health care probably delivery is not probably as as probably as the same excellence as you'd have here on the, in the mainland. But after a long period of time, they finally came to the realization that she had rheumatoid arthritis and basically her immune system had been compromised and she's very weak and having all kinds of trouble there. And they've been back and forth in the States and Churches gave substantial amounts of money to bring them here, to give them health care and things like that. And nothing was working. And Brother Mrs. Kumar and their little church there, they pledged themselves to a 40-day fast. They had never done this before. They pledged themselves to a 40-day fast. They got themselves ready just for that young girl. She was failing in health. Organs are failing. I mean, if you read some of the letters that he sent to our church that we read on Wednesday nights every now and then, they're just they're very troubling when you read about how could a 16, year old girl have so much health trouble? Brother Kumar wrote this in his letter. He said, on the 12th day, God gave them a breakthrough. On the 12th day of that fast, of prayer and fasting, God started to change her. What the medicine could not do, and what the doctors could not prescribe, and what the doctors could not do, God did, because he's a great physician. Amen? And I'm going to promise you something. The Kumars... Their little Baptist church on the Fiji Island, Regina Kumar especially, are probably more like Jesus Christ in purifying their lives than before they began that process. Fasting, prayer, winning souls, all of that. We've got to give ourselves, beloved, to the purifying of our Christian lives. Holiness is not an option. Holiness is an obligation. Holiness is not a consideration. Holiness is a command. Be ye holy, even as I am holy. Purification. Second Timothy 2, verses 20 and 22 tells us, But in a great house are vessels of gold, of wood and an earth, of silver, and gold. Of, uh, in, a, in a great house are vessels of gold and of silver, and of wood and of earth. And some of honor, some of dishonor. It says, The man therefore purge himself from these. He shall be a vessel unto honor, sanctified. That means purified. And meet for the Master's use, and prepared unto every good work. Flee also youthful lusts, and after righteous faith, charity, peace, for them that call on the Lord of a pure heart. Listen, we must, the Bible says here, every man that has his hope in him, Christ the hope of glory, purify themselves. In other words, we must give ourselves to daily cleansing and daily confession of sin and daily washing. And times, we go aside for God and we might spend an extra hour or two confessing our sins and spending time with God. Listen, we ought to take our Bibles every now and then and go to the book of Galatians and chapter 5 verse 22 and 26 and look at those works of the flesh and start praying over those works of the flesh Said, Lord, is that present in my life? And so every now and then we need to go to Ephesians chapter 4 when it talks about, about, uh, about grieving the spirit and it talks about the sins of the Spirit and confessing those sins. And every now and then we need to go to 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 1, where it talks about being cleansed from all. When it talks about being cleansed of sins of the flesh and of the Spirit, we need to get ourselves to a place of realizing the importance of being pure before God. Purity means being sacred. It means being immaculate. It means being clean. It means being chaste. It means being pure from carnality. It means being pure from every fault. It means our minds are in sync with God, that our minds is the mind of Christ. We're not thinking evil things. We're not thinking malice. We're not thinking evil. We're not thinking of unforgiveness. Purify means exactly that that we are pure and claim for the service of our Lord. But the Bible says in verse 3, he purified himself. Notice this, even as he, that is Jesus Christ, is pure. Now, John is saying what Peter said already be holy, even as I am holy. Now, read verse 3. Brings to my mind the analogy of a bride meeting her groom at the altar. My favorite events I love to serve in is presiding over weddings. My wife and I try to work with the couple. We talk to them and counsel them about their their dress attire and the bride, especially with her bridal dresses and things like that, because the uh, the customs right now, they... uh, In terms of wedding dresses are encouraging more immodest type dresses if I can say that. And covering more more body than probably should. If you want any thoughts on that, go back to Isaiah chapter 48. Isaiah 48 talks about making bare certain things that we're not supposed to do. But anyway, we try to have you know try to encourage the ladies about modesty about that. And I realize there's a customs but beyond the customs, there's God. We have to honor God at our wedding because that's a great testimony. And we have to remember that, that a, a Christian marriage is a Christian ceremony, a, 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 you know, a Christian wedding is, is a picture of, 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 the, of Christ and the church. But it reminds me that as the bride puts on a white dress, beautiful dress, she has to put that dress on early in the morning. She has someone coming to help her with her makeup, to arrange her hair. And every bride is made presentable and beautiful for that wedding day. And she gets herself so prepared. But the most important thing about her is she knows she can fix up her makeup. But that wedding dress, which is white, she has to work very diligently, and so do her bridesmaids, in making sure that the that, that wedding dress, which is white, does not get soiled, does not get dirty, does not get, does not get marred in any way. And so they work very diligently, especially if the wedding ceremony is an afternoon or evening ceremony, because she's had that dress on all day, as they take pictures. They go from destination A to destination B to destination C, and they go here and there. And she has to be very, very careful that. nowhere she goes and anything she does, that that wedding dress is marred or dirty in any way. And what a wonderful thing is, as the wedding ceremony is about to begin, and she takes one look at her dress and her train that's behind her, and she takes a very careful notice that everything is perfect, just as she put it on, that it's not been dirtied, it's not been soiled has not been marred in any way. She takes one more look and now she's looking at that aisle and she looks down the that aisle. She's looking at her groom and the groom is just excited. He's thinking, man, I, she's beautiful, but I've never seen her more beautiful than she is today. And he's looking right at her and she's looking at him. Their eyes are meeting each other and he can't wait because at that moment it's a sacred moment when a bride and a groom are going to be brought together in Jesus Christ. And he's looking at her and from a distance he looks at her dress. Can you imagine what would go in his mind and the groom's in his mind if that dress had a black spot on it, if it was soiled and dirty, if she walked in some mud and got it all sold. Listen, that would be a very, very hard thing. Today, I was thinking about today, my wife and I were just talking about today that today is Solomon and Carissa's wedding anniversary. They got married seven years ago and some of you were at that wedding. Remember, it was, a, it was an off-site wedding. It was a destination wedding. And uh, they chose a site there during this time of the year where it not rained. It had not rained all year there, except as that day approached, it rained on that day. And I told them they were cursed because it rained on my wedding day, too. And so I said, you're cursed. So Justin changed his mind. decided, I'm not going to do a fall and winter wedding. We're going to do a summer wedding. And if it rains, we are cursed also. Amen, you know? But uh, I remember that day that Carice was being so careful about her wedding dress. She wanted to keep it white and immaculate and clean. And, and uh, the, the place there, they were very, ca- uh, very gracious. They, I think if I remember right, they allowed her to ride on a, on a golf cart to, to get over this. She went and her dress and she did everything she could to keep it white. And I could imagine Solomon was waiting there watching her that perhaps if he saw any soil there or anything like that, it probably would have distracted him a little bit there. But he focused on her and you know, what a wonderful thing that when they, they got to there and then I was able to transition from the the, 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 the brother in Christ who had led in prayer and greeted them and then I transitioned from there. What a wonderful thing so I examined both of them. They were prepared and ready to be married there that day. Let me say this what a wonderful thing is that you and I, that we purify ourselves even as we are pure, that our Lord looks at us just like that wedding dress, that we're doing everything we can to keep our soul clean and keep our life from being soiled and keep our testimony from being brought down, that we're blameless and harmless, the sons of God without rebuke in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation. But how do we do that? It's just like the bride, she's thinking, okay, I've got X number of hours before I'm going to see my groom, and before I see my groom, my goal is I'm going to keep this dress clean, I'm going to keep this dress from getting soil. I spent a lot of money on it, and I want to just make sure that I don't get this dress all dirtied up. I want to be at that altar to join my groom. I want to become his husband, and in doing so, I know that it's not the dress that marries us, but I want to keep this dress white. And how much more the fact that you and I are going to see our Savior, Jesus Christ, that we're going to meet him one day, and we're going to see him as he is. We're going to see him in his glory. We're going to see him in his effulgence. We're going to see that he's the brightness of the glory of God. We're going to see him in his aura. We're going to see him in his holiness. We're going to see him in his greatness, just like the angels see him. It's They circle the throne of God and they say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And we read that, but we don't even capture the essence of that moment, the excitement and the enthusiasm. And if you would, the... Just the great, the great euphoria of the moment is there and all around the throne of God. Everyone is ch- shouting out about the holiness of God. Because the greatness of heaven is the, is the holiness of God. And you can imagine, if we can get our eyes on Him, and we watch our Lord Jesus Christ, we purify ourselves, we keep our lives clear, as because He is pure. Listen, that motivation tells me, man, when I sin, my conscience should be stricken. That motivation tells me, when God's Word speaks to me, that I'm praying, Dear God, cleanse me through Your Word which You've spoken unto me sanctify me through thy truth for thy word is true. that motivation tells me that when I go to prayer I better not monkey around and play around in prayer I better not just be pr- just saying a bunch of gibberish I better mean business with God in prayer that when I'm in prayer that I'm on my face before God when the tears need to flow and that God is working my life and that when I'm at prayer that I make sure that every sin is confessed and when God brings a sin to my mind I confess it before God and then that, that tells me that I'm focusing on the fact that even as he is pure I want to be pure I want to be pure just like him I'm focusing on my my prayer life. I'm focusing on my Bible study time. I'm focusing on my preaching right now. I'm focusing on my fellowship with God's people. I'm focusing on my service with God. That everything I'm doing, that I purify myself even as He is pure. That's my motivation. Your motivation in the Christian life is to be holy even as He is holy. Your motivation tomorrow morning is not, well, I feel really bad and I feel really tired. It's Thanksgiving week, so I want to sleep in. No, sir, I don't want to sleep in. I want to get up because the first face I want to see is the face of my Savior, Jesus Christ. first person I want to talk to every morning is my Savior, Jesus Christ. The first words I want to read every morning is the word of God. And as the word of God speaks to me, it brings tears to my heart. and gets a hold of me. I've been going through First Samuel again. and I got the chapters 9 and 10. And man, God was working all of me this morning and yesterday morning. As I was reading that before I got out, I thought, God, this is so good. I can't, I can't leave it right now. I need more of this dear God. He purifieth himself even as he's pure. We're willing to show a young man cleanse his way by taking heed thereto according to his word. Now you're clean to the word which I've spoken unto you. James four eight says, draw nigh to God, and he will draw nigh to you. Cleanse your hand, ye sinners, and purify your heart, ye double minded. First Peter one twenty two, seeing you have purified your souls, obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren. See that you love one another a clean heart fervently. A pure heart fervently. Are you clean? Are you pure? We purify ourselves even as He's pure. Talk about sonship. Talk about the means of sonship. We're adopted into the family of God. It occurs through the acceptance of Jesus Christ as our Savior. The key words are believe and receive. There's a marks of sonship. We love as He loves, we keep ourselves from sin. There's the metamorphosis in sonship. We shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. There's the motivation in sonship. Every man that has his hope and him purifying himself, even his spirit. But let me close with this by saying there's the moment of sonship. I want to say to everyone watching by live stream tonight, are you a son of God? Are you saved? Do you know for sure you're going to heaven? Are you born again? You see, you're born once, you're going to die twice. But when you're born twice, that means a physical birth, but also spiritual rebirth. You only die once. God wants you to be part of his family. God wants you to be his son. But the only way he can do that is according to John 1.12. To as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, even to them that believe on his name. Becoming a son of God, can happen at this moment. You can be born again right now. You become a son of God right now. You can be saved just right now. And while you're watching, I want to invite you tonight, if you're not sure you're a child of God, you've never called on the Lord as your Savior, you've never repented of your sins and called, would you do that tonight? Would you do that while you're watching the comfort of your living room, kitchen room, ta- your kitchen table, wherever you may be? Would you call on the Lord tonight and settle that today on this 22nd day of November that you're born again to God's family?